Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 36. This week, we talk with Josh Holmes to learn what you need to know about the Internet of Things, DRM'd cat litter, and we cry over bad password security. Merry Christmas, Carl. How's it going? A Merry Christmas to you, Jason. It's going pretty good over here. <laughs> so did you get anything good for Christmas? Since we're, you know, playing the show after releasing the show after Christmas. <laughs> I don't know yet. Uh, I, I'm not one of those kinds that goes looking for my presents ahead of time. And I haven't had any accidental uh, slip ups from, from my wife or my kids yet. So. Okay. Okay. So we don't know yet. So next episode, we'll have to talk about that if we got anything cool. And then we have uh, Josh Holmes with us. He's a senior evangelist and strategic engagement team within DX at Microsoft. Welcome, Josh. How's it going? Going really well. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, yeah. So uh, looking forward to talking to you because we're going to talk about uh, IoT or Internet of Things in just a bit. Uh, but first, let's jump into the news. So, Carl, you had a cool article here on touch and pointer events. Yes. Uh, somebody put up on uh, GitHub.io. They just went through every browser that they could find. You know, what what are the events that get fired and in which order when you touch a screen, when you touch it a second time and when you when you leave it um Mm -hmm. so we're talking about like the javascript events that happen in browsers so like on uh i'll just grab one on ios 7 and safari you'll get on the first tap touch start touch move touch and mouse enter mouse over mouse move mouse down mouse up and click (laughs) all those happen just on that one tap and it's different on the second tap and then when you leave you get the mouse leave and mouse out and what's what's really interesting is you know a lot of times people just implement what they think is best like you know well we'll handle all the mouse ones and that'll Mm -hmm. be good and then eventually they'll be doing some testing on a tablet and they'll be like oh there's these touch events too and microsoft uses these pointer events and all that and when we get looking at these i mean he went through a lot of work here there's a lot of data here um Mm -hmm. every browser has something different there it's, it's hard to find something common between them all if if you're really trying to hit them so if you want to defensively program you're you're gonna you're in for a lot of work to make sure everything works perfect and flawlessly everywhere yeah it's a little depressing looking at this at the the variation because what i would end up doing honestly if i was developing something using these events i would uh i'd probably spit these out to the console and then i would just take a look and, and say oh there's the order but i think what this shows is don't don't count on that order and whatever you know your code should support the the various orders that are listed here and and it it also makes you realize you know who is your audience and what's important to you right. uh, obviously he did some testing on you know some everything he could and some of it's like android 2.1 well you know if that's not your audience right. you can kind of throw that out and move on yeah so i uh i noticed something on here i was actually going to sort of give you a bonus tip here, but it looks like he covered it. There's this, uh, um, he's talking about this 300 millisecond delay. And I think we might've talked about this on a show a long time ago, because I ran into this whenever you use a touch screen uh, with certain browsers. So I think, um, I think, I can't remember if Chrome or IE, one of the two handles it correctly, but if you touch the screen, it's actually waiting uh, 300 milliseconds for you to to see if you're actually doing a, a scroll. And this was really frustrating because I, I wrote an Angular JS app, and since it was all running on the client, it was blazing fast, right? Everything was instant. I could, you could actually perceive that 300 millisecond delay. So it has information on here. Uh, it's showing like when when you actually get this delay, and then I think there's some information in here too on how to turn that off, which is pretty handy. Yep. Well, so the, jumping in here for a second, mm-hmm. um, I actually used to be on the Internet Explorer team for a bit. That's right. Uh, that's right. We should have mentioned uh, that in the beginning. 
the, you know, it's one of those, this matrix is terrifying <laughs> to web developers. Um, but it points out one of the things that, that you know, as, as I've been saying for a while, which is that Android is the new IE6. Yeah. Um, you know, because we've got, uh, you know, I'm looking at this uh, 2.1, 2.3.7, 4.3, 4.3, and actually 4.3 with Chrome, 4.3 with four or five other browsers, right. uh, including different variations of WebKit. And they all handle all these events in a different order. Mm-hmm. So it's like, whoa, whoa wait a yep. minute. <laughs> uh, that just that just absolutely kills me. But you know what, what's what's more disturbing to me, to be honest, um, and this is taking off my Microsoft hat for a moment, and just being a web guy, mm-hmm. um, we we handle things differently between IE ten and IE eleven, and and then IE ten and IE eleven. Uh, update one. Well, the logic, the logic that always happens, right. Is it's like, you look at that and you're like, this is a mess. We should fix it. So we'll do it this way in IE 12. And now we have a third way, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a whoops. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm looking at like, you know, opera mini, um, and it's only supporting the mouse moves. It's not supporting touch events or pointer (laughs) events. Yeah. Um, and pointer events is an amazing standard, and I I, I love pointer events. Um, they actually, if the industry would move to pointer events, it would clear up all this mess. Right. Um, but you know we can't do that obviously because well yeah Google's like on a crusade to 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 go against it right. Oh uh, yeah, they they were in it for a while. Um, they they were they were with us on the pointer events, and we're actually working to uh, get it supported in Polymer. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were making the updates to core to get the you know get the Chrome core to in order to support them adding pointer events in Polymer um, so that you could uh, just program against Polymer and it'd work everywhere. Um, however, for some reason they they and I, I don't know the politics behind it, but they changed their mind and uh, went went back on that that decision. Yeah. So what this what this page really tells me is I don't want to do front end web development. This looks horrible. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll stick with the back end where I can I can define the interface and the other side of it, and I'm you know everything is nice. Well, all of them it looks like support mouse. Yeah. So that's kind of the you know lowest common denominator. But what order they support it in is different, and touch is not a mouse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean it, it's. You know the, the the finger is uh, you know kind of forty ish pixels wide, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the um, mouse is one pixel wide. So uh, you know, and you can have gestures with with touch, yeah. whereas with the mouse it's kind of hard. So I mean, they are different things. But if you support mouse at a minimum, you should be okay. But it, you know, going back to this is news. That is a terrifying page. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, let's leave it at that and move on. So the next one here. So I actually I saw this one too, Carl. This uh, ten technical papers every programmer should read. And I've been, uh, I've been working on sending these over to my Kindle. Yeah. So anything uh, interesting in particular to you in here? Um, one, I, I just like to emphasize, you know, I mean, most of us who listen to podcasts such as this one, I mean, we classify ourselves as lifelong learners. And I just saw this as a good uh, set of resources that I probably would never have seen. You know, they're all computer science-y, you know, if not directly computer science. And uh, a lot of them either are, are really core based stuff. Like uh, th- there's one that uh, talks about an axiomatic basis for computer programming, where it shows in, in notation PQR. And he just covers that highly, you know, before the link that if assertion is P, assertion P is true before program Q, 
then assertion R will be true on its completion. And if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's very simple, but I mean, it kind of gives you a lot of that math behind what, what is it that a program does on a high level, you know, given an input to a program, a function, a method, whatever, whatever it does inside of it, it will have a result R. Mm-hmm. And, you, yeah. you know, it's it's very simple, but at the same time, when you go behind it, you know, a lot of times I like to go back to sometimes what is the math behind what I'm doing? Because that'll, yeah. that, that'll help me either simplify it or refactor it or, or something. So, you know, I, I like getting down and dirty into in, into these these papers like this because they help me rethink what I'm doing on a daily basis. Yeah, this is from 1969. And, uh, um, you know, there's like pages and pages of paper in here. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. But what I think is great. I mean, we, we live in this, this Twitter, you know, 10 second, uh, at most, uh, attention span. Right. And, uh, this kind of stuff is not link baity enough for it to normally pop into, uh, into what we see. So I think it's good to, uh, you know, look at this kind of stuff to be a little bit more well-rounded instead of just getting the, uh, seeing all the clink, clickbait. And then uh, one thing I found is I was trying to find uh, better copies of some of these. And I, I didn't I realized that some of these were like scanned in and uh, and then put into a PDF. So I was looking for versions that were a little bit nicer to read. And one thing that I actually f- uh, came across that I thought was kind of cool is this guy, uh, Swizek Teller. And uh, I don't know when he did this. It looks like actually it looks like he finished the, this year, but uh, like in April of this year. But he, he had a, a string of blog posts. We'll include this in the show notes, but um, it was 52 papers in 52 weeks. So he sort of took this to heart. And every week he he read a paper and then he summarized it on his blog, which I thought was pretty neat. Actually, no, now that I look at it, it looks like he just gave up because <laughs> he got to he got to 20 and I don't see any. That was in April. I don't see anything after that. Uh, so definitely not for the faint of heart, but he, these weren't even, uh, necessarily all, uh, program related or, pro- or development related, but they were still, there were interesting, uh, uh, interesting papers out here. Should we move on? Uh, Azure mobile sync, uh, uh, sorry, Azure mobile services, offline sync SDK. Now, and this is now GA. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, this is now general availability, but, uh, it's something that I forgot that had been out for a while, at least in a preview form. So what this is, is a lot of people use uh, Azure mobile services to, you know, back up their data. So in your code, you'd have, you know, app.mobileservice.get get table, and then uh, you'd get all your data back. But what this does is instead of using that get table, you can do get sync table. And it'll, when you're offline, when you don't have that internet access, it'll keep track of all the changes that are happening. And then when it does get access again, it'll sync those behind the scenes. That way you don't have to write all that code because that code is really hard to write. It's hard to get perfect. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's nice just to have that just as part of a service. Um, You can just change that in your, that method call in your app. And that's all you really need to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is a problem that that's that's way more complicated than what it seems on the surface. And it doesn't and it also doesn't have to be. I mean, this this really uh, kind of hides all the implementation behind the scenes for you and makes it really easy. Yep, And there's there's links on this article to uh, the NuGet package for Windows Universal apps for Xamarin apps. And it says that iOS and Android SDKs are coming out soon. So this is something if that's all you need right now. You can grab the code, use it in your production code. It's generally available. Very cool. Yeah. All you do is instead of get table, yeah, get sync table. What about, um, does this say anything about conflicts? I'm sure that's in the documentation. I don't see anything on this 
page. I mean, that's always the the big issue, right? Is conflicts. Mm-hmm. Did, did you read anything about that? Or it, you, it didn't discuss that in this article. Okay. I'm sure they cover something about that more detailed in the documentation, though. Oh, yeah. The first comment, sync data across multiple devices and detect conflicts when the same record is modified, modified by two devices. So it does detect it. I'm wondering if you just have to put in your own custom logic to tell it how to do that. So, OK, well, anyway, moving on. Oh, and you said that. So this is available in a NuGet. Um, so it's real easy to incorporate in. Cool. Uh, and then next. Uh, so this one is is one that developers will be very interested in. Apparently, Carl, DRM cat litter. I mean, we're, we're we as developers are very familiar with DRM and the downsides of it. And it is, to me, this is just one of those amazing things that people have found a way to put DRM into cat litter. Um, so, you know, what, what somebody had found is they found this cat litter box that had these plastic beads and it used this solution to clean the beads whenever their cat used the litter box. And uh, they got sick of, uh, or they got uh, ran out of the cleaning solution one day and they realized they could just open the bottle and put it in and it wouldn't use it. And they're like, what the heck? So after doing a little bit of internet searching, they realized there's an RFID chip in there that keeps track of how much that bottle was used and wouldn't let you refill it. Nice. And, you know, it just kind of goes to, you know, we, there's been a lot of controversy over the, you know, like those coffee makers that take K cups, you know, the new, the new versions of those, if you, if it doesn't detect the right ink on the package, it won't let you brew a, you know, your cup of coffee. And, you know, to me, this is, you know, you know, products gone wrong, you know, you know, why are you getting sucked into these very tiny ecosystems? Yeah. When you don't have to. And, uh, you know, you know, also I brought it out, you know, it's, you know, the Christmas time in the U S you know, we're consuming a lot. We're buying a lot, you know, don't get sucked into these things that, you know, might have this kind of, you know, DRM implemented that we're not aware of. Yeah. This says 350 bucks on the solution is what, uh, is what it was costing him a year. Yeah. So anyway, so what's the, uh, so what's the solution here? You know, in this case, they found that somebody had been able to hack it so you can, you know, use your own solution. But I guess be just be smart shoppers, be thoughtful when you're looking at things. If if you're buying something that, you know, takes a consumable or something you have to purchase from time to time, you know, think about, you know, is there is there a chance that they could be putting a lock on this so I couldn't use my own stuff in the future if I don't want to be locked into their you know ecosystem? Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah, so it looks like you can buy these pre yeah these pre made cartridges now to to you know sort of aftermarket yeah. firmware yeah very interesting yeah a lot of like I just said you know a lot of us are used to this in software but we're not used to thinking of it you know like cat litter yeah yeah I saw it with the the Keurig uh, machines and and that was I thought that was a little crazy they're they're just it's it's a money play because um, all these uh, third party cartridges popped up so in this case uh, it looks like yeah you can buy this aftermarket firmware. And I don't recall, wasn't there a, I think there's a law and I don't know, remember me if this is in the U S or not. I think there's a law that says that, that you can do this, right. You can hack your own devices like this. Cause I don't think there's anything illegal about this. Right. I know that some companies were, were trying to make it illegal. And I think that the court ruled that, Hey, you bought it, you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure, but it does, okay. it, it is ringing some sort of bell. So I don't know yeah. what the status of that is, but okay. No problem. Uh, up next, horrible password security. Did you take a look at this one, Carl? Yes, I did. 
Yeah, since we we didn't really talk about security uh, last week, I we had mentioned uh, right in the beginning of the show the the North Korea attack or the, the attack on Sony, whoever it was, and uh, and I saw this article and just it just had me shaking my head. Uh, this this guy he he actually just paid attention a little bit. He what was the company here? Schwab. Schwab. Yeah, he's it was a brokerage account. So this is you know this is his retirement account, which arguably has more money in it than than any of your other assets, you know, theoretically. And uh, he w- he was talking about this how they have a they have an eight character password length uh, limit. So if your password is longer than that, they end up just truncating it, which is pretty crazy. Um, and then he he wanted better security, so Schwab offers these tokens that you can get, where you get the little you know number generator. So you you get that thing in the mail, and he was pretty happy with that. He thought it was adding security. Then he decided to try it one day uh, without the without the token, and it worked just fine. So the token is completely optional, which makes it completely useless. And um, uh, he he had some other things in here, but then I was I was following up on this and and reading about how uh, how some other places do this. I, I don't know if it was Schwab or it was another financial company that uh, they're storing the passwords in plain text because whenever you reset your password, they're emailing you the password. Which of course, then if that email isn't encrypted, every server that that email went through. Uh, has a copy of your password and knows exactly where to go, which is which is pretty crazy. And then w- one other thing I wanted to mention on this too was uh, sort of my personal pet peeve that I've I've I, I just I keep bugging. I you know I I I love Fidelity, but one thing that really bugs me um, about their app and and uh, a lot of these banking apps that they don't let you save your password. And their response to me was that um, oh we do that for security reasons. But I always argue that if you don't let me save the password, you are promoting easy passwords. And there's been I've I've been tempted. I have I don't know. Let's say I think it's like a 20 character random password with fidelity. I don't even know what it is. I've been tempted to switch that to a really easy password just so that I can use their app. But, you know, I've I've resisted that temptation. But I, I guarantee half the people that use fidelity, they're like, oh, well, I want to make this easier on me. And they're, they're just using a, a simple password, like their dog's name or, or their birthday or something like that. So that's been one of my pet peeves. And, and they say it's for security, but the, the fact is, you know, I had to use a, a pin to unlock my uh, phone. Even if you don't have a pin, the fact is you ever, you know, everybody I know with a smartphone, they get email, uh, they get their email on their phone, right? Which is the master key to everything that you have anyway. So if you have access to my email, you can just go to Fidelity and tell them to reset my password and you get a link to reset the password. So my phone already has full access to Fidelity without, um, you know, without that password protection. So why don't they save the password for me or let me put a pin code on it? And I can't remember. uh, There is an app on my phone. I can't remember which, which which banking app it is, but I do have one that lets you save the password and then add an additional pin on top of it, which I think is the way to go. Am I I the only one that's going to rant here? No, (laughs) it's amazing how many places have so many conflicting and poor uh, password password rules and and validations. Another thing that kind of hit me here was, you know, outside of, you know, what was frustrating from the security standpoints was just, you know, the bad user experience, too. He mentioned that to use that token, he had to, like, copy it and paste it after his password, which just kind of seems kludgy. I mean, you know. I've worked on systems in the past where we'll email somebody a special one-time use link that has, you know, a funky token that has to match up. And, you know, with the account that they're trying to log in and a bunch of other things that, you know, you know, 
it it can be done in a secure manner. You can um, more and more you're starting to see like other people do that with unsubscribe links. You know, you just click that link and it knows who you are and it knows that you no longer want that email. You're exactly. And you know, these things can be done in a secure way. They're not that hard. You know, it takes an hour or two of research, an hour or two to implement. And, you know, a, a little bit of thoughtfulness really helps, you know, keep your user base engaged mm-hmm. and uh, thinking highly of you. And if you're a developer and this stuff scares you, then outsource it. Use something like, you know, I guess I'm plugging this, but Azure Active Directory, you know. So now I, I was actually, it was just kind of top of mind. I was integrating it with a website. They made it so it's just a few lines of code to to integrate it. And you you basically end up, uh, the library handles the, you know, the, the trust it, it handles seeing when a user is unauthenticated, it sends it over to a site that's capable of authenticating you. One that is already handling a, you know, a bajillion authentications and has already been hardened and secured and then sends that back. And, you know, so you don't even need any code. I mean, it's pretty tough to screw it up. So. Yeah. Well, that, that's not good enough for some companies. Right. The, uh, my, my favorite horror story around uh, security was there was an admin, uh, security admin in uh, this company I worked for in Ann Arbor. Uh, fortunately, I was just a contractor there. Yeah. But they had uh, 60 some odd employees. They used Active Directory for their uh, authentication and all that kind of stuff. However, um, this guy did not trust random password generators. They weren't random enough. <laughs> nice. And so, well, because they're pseudo random, <laughs> right? So every uh, uh, every month, because uh, he had a thirty day password change cycle. Yeah. Because um, that's useful, and <laughs> he um, went through and hand made up sixty some odd passwords. Mm-hmm. They were all twenty ish characters, random capitalization and uh, letters. And then went around and gave everybody their password. <laughs> nice. so what, what would you do if somebody handed you a random string of characters that was 20 some odd, you know, uh, characters long that you had to memorize and type in every uh, day? Well, I would change it a second later. Well, he locked that down. You couldn't do that. Nice. Well, then you're going to put it on a sticky note, of course. Yes, you do. Yep. And where do you put the sticky note? Yeah, right on your monitor. Right on your monitor. <laughs> um, the other fun one was he did the same thing for all the servers. And, of course, um, you know, the the servers, you know, I had access to five of them. So, I mean, I'm not going to remember a hundred some odd random characters. Right. Um, so, immediately, all those got written down on a sticky note and taped to the side of the server. Yeah. Well, that did happen in that Sony hack, too. I mean, there were uh, files called passwords.txt, and it had all the passwords in there. And then yep. I had some fun uh, arguments with uh, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley auditors. And they came in, and they were saying that, hey, you have to, you know, similar to what you said, Uh, you have to change your passwords, you know, every 60 days. And we were trying to, we were trying to get it so that that link was longer and longer. And, uh, and, you know, I was trying to make the argument. It's like, listen, the, the more difficult you make this for users and the more, the more complexity you add. Um, and, and as you add, uh, as you add this complexity, they're going to write it down. It's going to be on their monitor. So I said, why not let them come up with good random passwords on their own and uh, you know, let them keep it for a good period of time because you're not going to be able to really do anything with it in a brute force attack anyway. And then the other thing was, you know, this notion that, that you have these complexity requirements and basically Sarbanes-Oxley, they, they, they dictated the exact complexity it had to have. And it was always, Oh, it has to be, you know, like eight characters and a number and a, you know, whatever. Right. And, and it basically defined what every password looked like. 
So your your attack vector for for you know guessing passwords was so small because right. you knew pretty much everybody was picking. It was like dictionary word plus one to three digit numbers plus you know exclamation or question mark or you change the letters to zero. You know get get clever there and ease to threes and things like that. So it just makes it so that it's so easy to 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 you know guess these passwords. It's just ridiculous. Okay, should we move on? Okay, sounds good. So let's talk to Josh about something that we've uh, we sort of talked about in the past. We talked to uh, Tim Park regarding nitrogen at one point, which was a, a pretty cool framework for IoT. And uh, I know we've had, I think, 10 different episodes where we've mentioned, hey, we should do an IoT episode, uh, Internet of Things episode. And finally, we're, we're getting around to it. And, you know, I sort of... Uh, uh, you know, thought in, you know, search my brain for, you know, who would be a good, well-rounded person to do this. And I know Josh, you have uh, quite a bit of experience in this, in this space um, because you've been working with a lot of different people at Microsoft. You've been working with, you know, startups and companies like that. So do you want to give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, so it's, it's a long and varied background. So <laughs> how far back do we want to go? Um, you know, I used to run landscaping crews and do all kinds of other weird things. Like I was a bouncer for a while. Um, <laughs> I, I provided personal security for uh, salt and pepper. Um, oh really? They, yeah. Yeah. That's for, cool. for a brief time back in the uh, 91, uh, same, same year that they were really, really hot. Yeah. Um, in all essences of the word, the, um, so, but I'm assuming that's not the background you're talking about. <laughs> no, in, unless unless okay. there was sort of an IoT angle. <laughs> no, 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 not, not, not way back then. No, no, so, that's fine. <laughs> my, um, so I've been a web guy for, for a very long time. I mean, okay. My first um, uh, consulting back in the day was uh, in early to mid-90s. Um, was all uh, ASP Classic. Um, and, I mean, it, it, I've got some fun horror stories I can tell from those days. But... Um, you know, I've always been fascinated by how we have this incredible intelligence, you know, sometimes just in our pocket. I mean, the, you know, the it was the day when I realized that my phone that I had in my pocket, um, you know, had more computing power than the, um, uh, you know, rockets landed on the moon. Right. And, you know, and, and, and then, you know, and that was late 90s, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so things have come along so much further since then. Um and so things around us are becoming much, much more intelligent and much more um, engaged. And, I, and it's just, it's a fascinating thing to me to watch that happen and really exciting to be part of that. Um, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was part of the Internet Explorer team for a while. Um, and you know, while that was great in helping connect users to the Internet, um, what's really exciting to me is connecting things to the Internet and starting to apply intelligence to it. Right. So um, uh, I've been doing that for about, about, well, I guess just about a year now. Uh, I've been fairly heavily embedded in Microsoft's All Up Internet of Things strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you were talking to Tim about nitrogen, um, I'm one of the core members on the nitrogen team. Um, uh, have been working very closely with the Event Hubs team. Have mm-hmm. been working very closely with you know the, um, uh, the Windows on Devices team. Um, you know, the, et cetera, et cetera, uh, here at Microsoft and helping uh, figure out what our strategy is and, and our go-to-market is. Okay. So when somebody says Internet of Things, what does that imply? Because for a lot of people, that's a buzzword. And for a few other people, you know, they may have a very shallow definition of what that is, whether it's, you know, you know, an in- individual device that hooks up to 
the internet or something, or maybe even more industrial, uh, meet, you know, version of what that means. So when that's called out, what, from your point of view and the people that you've worked with, what does that imply? So when the people that um, are, are talking about internet or things, um, you know, on the internet, a lot of them where they think, uh, oh, I've hooked up my um, coffee pot to my iPhone. Mm-hmm. That's cute. <laughs> I, I, it's cute. It, it's not, you know, and, and, and I mean, I guess some people think that's going to change people, the world, man. Absolutely, man. <laughs> well, and, and sadly, they're getting VC money for that. Hmm. The um, what what kills me about that though is that you know I I think that's cute. The Internet of Things though is not just being able to connect one thing to one other thing. The Internet of Things is really having things that are all working in concert uh, in concert together as a system. And so, what's much more interesting to me is well, my phone knows where I'm at. That's great. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my Fitbit knows how many steps I'm taking and, uh, and so on and so forth. So, um, as I'm running around and I'm, you know, out on my bike and I have just biked, you know, 10 miles through the woods, you know, mountain biking, um, and that's being tracked by my phone, by my Fitbit, by, you know, other devices around me and on my phone, uh, it's checking to see how many calories I'm burning. And so my fridge is now starting to pull together recipes that are going to help me do my calorie replenishing and my carb replenishing. And, you know, when I, when I get home, all that's ready to go for me to start, you know, chopping up the, 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 the right vegetables. And there's the recipes right there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's systems working together. Um, similarly, you, know, you start looking at uh, any large scale factory and uh, I, know, I know, Jason, you've done a lot in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually um, have a framework that you've written, um, the manufacturing framework for Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that available anywhere publicly? Yeah, it's on right? GitHub. Okay. Um, and where on GitHub is that? Uh, we can include a, a link in the show notes. You want me to send it to you? I don't know. I, I, I know where it's at. I was just, you know, we're, well, let's just make sure we get it in the show notes. Yep. It's github.com slash why techie. And then, uh, under the repositories, you can see there's a whole bunch of, uh, repositories that have the manu- manufacturing prefix. Yep. Cool. And so, uh, you know, when you start thinking about a large scale factory, the, you know, the just in time, uh, inventory process that, uh, you know, the lean manufacturing, mm-hmm. um, you know, that a lot of the industry is moving to, it becomes incredibly important for everything to be working in concert. Oh yeah. And so, um, you know, ranging from on the system, you know, on, on the, the, uh, conveyor belt, you know, how fast are the, the items moving? What is the, you know, the contents of the bins that are supplying this particular, particular, um, uh, Wow, my brain just went completely dry. <laughs> production line. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Uh, all the bins that are supplying this particular production line, um, and you know what what is the trigger point for ordering new stuff? Mm-hmm. Does a human have to be involved in that? And then you know, well, now that we know that we need X Y Z plastic pellets, um, let's go order that truck full of plastic pellets to come in. But where's the truck? How long is it going to get here? What kind of traffic is between here and there? Uh, I mean, there's so much potential to make everything so much more streamlined and to have the correct redundancies built in. I mean, lean manufacturing, if all of a sudden one of the trucks is uh, involved in a traffic accident, 
we should know that, yep. you know, or if, if, it's, if it's delayed in traffic and, you know, not even in the accident itself, but just delayed in traffic, we should be able to go get the, you know, plastic pellets that we need from a different source. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and anyways, from quality control to predictive maintenance to, you know, supply chain management, um, in the enterprise and in manufacturing, it's incredibly cool of uh, space. Um, but also at home, and this is where it's getting a lot of hype and a lot of press is, you know, I think houses are becoming a lot smarter. Um, so, I mean, I, it long winded answer, but you know, when people talk about let's connect, you know, my iPhone to my, you know, phone or, or my coffee pot or, you know, my toaster. security system or toaster <laughs> or whatever it is, again, that's cute and it can be useful. Yeah. But when I'm thinking of the internet of things, I'm thinking of a system of things that are all working in concert together and, you know, really making the entire ecosystem and the, and the, and the, our surroundings more intelligent, more reactive to us. And that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so as an example, next week, um, I'm going to be at CodeMash mm -hmm. and, um, CodeMash, a uh, great conference. I know you guys have had, um, uh, Clark cell, Clark cell on who's, who did, um, and then also, conference. uh, Jeff, Jeff Blankenberg. Yep, and so Jeff has um, uh, been integral to uh, CodeMash since the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, actually, at a trivia fact, um, Drew Robbins and myself founded CodeMash way back in the day. Okay, cool. Um, and then we handed it over to Jim Holmes, who did a much better job running it than I ever would have. <laughs> um, amazing, amazing guy. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go sit down and have a beer with him, you'll get smarter. Is he related to you? No, no okay. relation. Okay, I just, uh, no just, just making sure. <laughs> I mean, we, we trace back to, um, tangent, uh, we trace back <laughs> to, uh, his family came in from, uh, Kentucky at one point in time. Okay. And my family came down from Kentucky, uh, to Arkansas. Okay. And so the Holmes side of my family has been sharecroppers in Arkansas for, you know, close to 200 years. Mm -hmm. Um, but we think that at some point we were probably related back in Kentucky, but mm. that's pretty cool. 200 plus years ago. So, yeah, yeah. you know, however many generations. But anyway, so getting, getting back to what you're talking about before, oh. I think those, those are amazing scenarios. So the, you know, you were talking about the sort of the home scenario and, and I, I kind of feel the same way. I think there's, I think there's some, some sort of breakthrough things. I mean, people have talked about all these devices working together in your home and I, I think it will change people's lives to a certain extent. Um, and just because there are so many people on the planet, obviously it's the, the opportunities there are huge in aggregate, but whenever we look at manufacturing, I think we're, we're at such an, you know, it's really in its infancy as far as the, the type of, um, collaboration of devices that you were talking about. And that's where oh, I get really excited because there's, there's, the, you know, these companies, if, if there is a return, they're willing to invest um, so that's good. They, you know, there's, there's an opportunity for money there. And, uh, you know, as time goes on, I think that the, the return on investment, the ROI is going to keep getting better and better as these things get smarter. And, and there, it's going to be required for these companies to compete because even if they, even if they get, you know, dragged in kicking and screaming, their competition is going to be doing it and they're going to be more profitable. So it's, it's something I don't, I don't think these companies are going to be able to avoid, uh, for too much longer. Um, they tend to move kind of slow. So, you know, they, they, they still have a little bit of time, but man, we keep seeing it uh, more and more. Um, one thing I wanted, I just kind of want to broaden, uh, what this whole thing looks like, and then we'll kind of come back in. But, um, you know, one thing I was curious about is how does the cloud fit into this, this whole thing? 
So absolutely. The um, let me finish up my thought from earlier. Real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so at Codemash, I'm running a workshop, uh, a lab, and uh, me and Brent Steinman are yep. going to be doing a uh, a lab where. The central thing is, is that when you walk into the room, we have motion sensors. Mm -hmm. And the motion sensors are going to say, hey, there's somebody here. Yeah. Great. And it's going to start firing notice notifications all over and saying, you know, well, they're, they're over here now, they're over here now. And so the lab is everybody builds other devices that fit into that scenario as a connected room. Okay. And so the lights start coming on. I've got Bluetooth lights. We've got... Um, you know, otherwise we can wire in directly into uh, the Arduino UNES and whatnot. The um, we've got speakers, um, you know, that we can you know connect to via Bluetooth as well. Um, you know, we've got all kinds of little devices and you know servos to open blinds and you know uh, do locks and pressure sensors and you know. So the, the, we're going to build a smart room in a in a day mm -hmm. uh, as as this lab at CodeMash. Um, cool. So. Uh, you asked about, about the cloud. Yeah. Um, the cloud is incredibly important to the Internet of Things because uh, even though these devices are becoming an incredible amount more um, intelligent, more powerful, um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that they need to be able to connect to somewhere for data analysis, for um, uh, you know, all kinds of different um, synchronization and coordination between all the different devices. I mean, peer-to-peer -peer is fantastic. And I love the um, resilience that you get from a peer-to-peer -peer network. Right. Um, however, a peer-to-peer -peer network doesn't do big data analysis. Right. You know. So, um, you know, we've got in the in the cloud, you know, generically, um, the you know the capability for tremendous amounts of processing, um, and that becomes very exciting when you start talking about uh, machine learning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, coming back to like the manufacturing scenario that we were talking about earlier, um, we, you know, we as humans have an idea of how much time it's going to take for pellets to get in and what the right cutoff level is to order new pellets. But what if we start looking at the actualities of it and we allow machines to aggregate hundreds of thousands of orders and figure out exactly how many seconds it's going to take and exactly what the right cutoff is to make things as lean as possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and how do we, how do we, you know, do that intelligently? Well, machine learning is going to be able to, to get us there. How far away are we from, you know, seeing devices that, you know, act together in tandem in unison like that? So uh, what you're talking about there is um, what they call mesh technologies, mm -hmm. um, where the devices, instead of talking through a central um, server, uh, they're actually talking directly to each other. And so um, mesh is very exciting, and I think that we that there's a strong future for mesh. Um, in fact, one of our coworkers, a guy named you know, Yaron, is working on a project called Tali. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm trying to remember the T A T H A L I, yes T H A L I project dot org, um, and Tali is an open source platform for building mesh networks and mesh uh, devices. Um, very cool, uh, lots of great stuff. The um, uh, where we are at the moment is um, that it's still in its kind of in, in its infancy. Right. Um, I mean, we have uh, the ability to program devices to talk directly to each other, um, and we have the ability to do mesh networks, 
but A, you know, it's not out of the box, and B, people are not using it to its fullest. Um, where I see it being really, really interesting and really useful is in scenarios where um, the, the show must go on. Um, you know, so if you think about a, uh, a hospital and all the um, uh, devices that are in the room are, you know, talking back to a uh, central server, what happens if that central server goes down? We still need to keep the patient alive. Right. That's probably a good idea. <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe. Um, you know, same kind of a thing, you know, uh, manufacturing floor. You know, if, if the internet connection goes down, we still need the production line to work. Oh, yeah. Especially, and, I mean, that could be, you know, a million dollars a minute that they're producing. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's staggering some of the numbers that are um, uh, coming out of some of these manufacturing plants. Right. Um, and, and as Jason said, it's literally millions of dollars a minute. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you know, the margin is 2% on that. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what that means is that they're losing $980,000 a minute. Um, and, and, you know, and, and their profit would have been 20,000 or something. Right. On it. That's a good point. Um, yeah. Anyways, the, um, but in those scenarios, the mesh networks are, uh, incredibly important the the trick though is is that the devices themselves have to be powerful enough in order to um uh to actually do some computing mm -hmm. and to actually do uh do some real work the great news is that is happening um if you look at the uh size of the chips that are out there now uh compared to what they used to be um it's it's phenomenal uh, moore's law is still in effect um, you know, my device that I've been playing with quite a bit recently, um, is the Arduino Yume. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know if you guys have seen the Arduino Yume, um, but it has a, um, uh, what they call an Amtel chip, which is a, a small real-time processing chip. Um, that's what's on most of the Arduinos. Now the, those devices, those little chips are not, not smart enough, not bright enough to do a lot of the things that we kind of need such as security. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I've gotten Polar SSL running on um, a Arduino Due. Okay. Uh, however, it took um, over a third of the RAM. I mean, it was it was a, a tremendous percentage <laughs> wow. of the of the RAM on the device just to load that library. Mm -hmm. And then my app took the rest of it, and right. it had no RAM left over for actual processing. Mm -hmm. Shit. <laughs> um, so, but. What the Yoon has got, in addition to the little Amtel chip to do real-time kind of work, it also has the, a, a little bitty, um, and it's about two inches by one inch um, uh, wide and tall, and then its depth is probably, I don't know. Uh, millimeter? About a, about, a, about a millimeter, a sixteenth yeah. of an inch or so. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, it's teensy. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a Linux system on a chip. There are also Windows systems on a chip. Uh, those are the predominant, you know, kind of system on a chip mm -hmm. uh, operating systems. Um, but you know, in that little bitty chip, it's got Wi-Fi. It's got um, some flash memory. It's got um, the uh, the processor itself, which is a typically low processing power, but sufficient for what we need for a single purpose device. Um, uh, you wouldn't put a server on there. Right, right. Well, that's However, the thing. I mean, your your desktop computer 
is is extremely powerful because they have to be so general purpose. So I think yes. I think it was you know you mentioned it real quick, but the the fact that these things are are sort of single purpose yes. means that they just don't need a lot of compute power. They only do exactly what they need, and you don't have you know this this complicated scheduler running that that has to shuffle fifty different. Actually, on on my computer right now, even though I'm not doing anything, there's probably ten thousand things going on right now in simul- right. simultaneously, and they all have to be managed. And these devices don't have that complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, in order for a mesh network to be listening, sorry, to be to be working, um, it needs to be able to do some type of um, active processing and passive listening for incoming events. Right. Um, and you know, so because we can't do long polling like we do to servers, we actually need to be able to to, to push direct connections into the device. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needs to have fairly sophisticated networking abilities so that it can do, you know, kind of Wi-Fi direct, you know, from device to device to device to device. Right. Um, and, you know, once we have those things in place, it's pretty magical what you can get done. Yeah. Um, the key is, though, each device has to be uh, fairly self-sufficient, but single purpose, um, you know, and, and, and doing one small bit. And it knows how to make decisions for itself. Um, once you have that, uh, mesh is a great uh, way to go, um, but you also still need kind of the centralized processing power um, for that big data analytics to be able mm-hmm. to look, you know, across not one production line, but across a dozen production lines or, you know, a dozen factories or, you know, an entire company. Yeah, and I would think really- even from an orchestration perspective. So you have these devices like, hey, I can I can open and close this valve. And I know that this other device is going to is going to tell me like when this product goes by, but somebody's got to tell us, you know, how to, you know, at least initially how we should work together. Like I should be, I should watch this valve and when, or I should, I should watch when a product goes by and I should open this valve and then, and then they could work independently. But yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought about this before, but you need, you need somebody to just sort of give that initial, you know, uh, configuration push or the, the original instruction set. Well, and, and beyond just the original instruction set, there's also, um, you know, right now I need a whole bunch of, um, I don't know, uh, front windows for a car. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to produce a whole bunch of them really quickly. Well, actually, there was a slowdown in this other part, and I don't need these front windows stacking up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to slow down this production line to let everybody else catch up. You know, that's centralized decision making versus local mesh networking. Yeah. So it's sort of a sort of a mesh of devices, but I would almost think like a, a they're organized in in sort of a tree structure where you have uh you know sort of supervisor nodes that are always one level above uh, another set of nodes. Yeah, I think that's the direction that we're going to end up going um, with the IoT frameworks, especially in larger companies and um, in manufacturing. You know, at home, you know the uh, the, the the problem that we're going to have at homes is that. Um, you know, there's a thousand and one different protocols out there and everybody's still licking the cookie and saying, Hey, I want, I want to be king of the mountain. Yep. Um, and you know, and, and, and so there's not a centralized way to do. I've never, I've never heard that licking the cookie. It took me, took me a minute. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. I do that with my kids. <laughs> you see, you lick the, you lick the cookie. Yeah. And then, and then it's, it's yours. Okay. I guess yes. that yes. is, that is awesome. I, I have not heard that one. That's cool. Sorry. That amused well, me. Well, it's no problem. Uh, there's a lot of cookie looking going on in the IoT space, especially in the homes. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in the homes, it's it's 
Um, you know, there's there's a thousand and one protocols and a thousand and one different companies. And when you actually get down to it, they all do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Only uh, similar to the kitty litter, they have decided to DRM it all so that they can be, <laughs> you know, king of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I would say some of them are closed ecosystems. Some are open, uh, but mm-hmm. they but everybody wants to own it, of course. Right. Exactly. And so since everybody wants to own it, um, what happens is more and more and more and more fragmentation. Um, I, th- I think that the that's going to be an interesting space to, to, to watch mm-hmm. from a because um, uh, you know, I mean, they're way behind where the manufacturing world is. I mean, the manufacturing world, um, you know, at one point in time was this fragmented or more so. Um, and in some ways still is, but mm-hmm. you know, they, there are at least a handful of um, financially driven decisions mm-hmm. <laughs> that have, you know, if you want to sell into XYZ company, you have to support OPC, yep. um, you know, or you have to support, you know, some other yeah backnet or something like that. Exactly. And um, so as a result of uh, some financially back pressure, um, it has, um, for some standards in the manufacturing space in particular. But, you know, if you look at the, the home, part of the problem is that we've got an incredibly, and, and, and I'm, you know, I apologize if this sounds, you know, abrasive or whatever. We've got an incredibly um, uh, unintelligent society buying these devices. I mean, think about the... I would say, un, uh, the, let's say uninformed. Is uninformed. It, that uninformed is a much better word. Yes, uninformed is a much better word. Naive, yeah. even. Yeah. Naive is probably the better word yeah. because naive is I want to trust that all this is going to work. Yeah. And I don't know that it's not going to. Right. Until I buy that cat litter and realize it's three hundred forty-five dollars a damn bottle. Yeah, <laughs> <God>, gummit. <laughs> um, and you know, and, and that they've built in you know systems to lock it down and make sure I can't use anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, shoot. Um. And so, you know, we're getting into that scenario right now, um, or we are in that scenario with um, uh, home automation. You know, there's there's a thousand and one different uh, standards, um, and all of the big companies uh, that could conceivably play in this space are trying to play in this space. I mean, you know, Best Buy, Lowe's, um, Comcast for some reason, um, <laughs> Rogers in, in uh, North, uh, sorry, in uh, Canada. Yep. Um, you know, and then obviously, um, uh, Google, uh, with the, with the nest and, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's also, um, other companies that are trying to produce standards. Qualcomm is, uh, you know, doing a pretty good job, uh, pushing a standard called, uh, all join. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about the mesh network, all join is a, uh, a kind of a form of that, um, it's peer to peer within the same network, um, you know, within the same um, uh, home typically. And so, uh, if you go buy a new uh, smart LG TV, um, the uh, all the smart LG TVs are all all joint enabled, meaning that um, you know they can talk to any speakers that are all joint enabled. Um, or you know, you're, there's there are coffee pots, there are lights, uh, the Lifex lights, uh, the light bulbs are going to be all joint enabled. Um, you know, there's quite a few uh, devices, um, and Qualcomm is, as, as you know, they produce this as a um, as their as their own way of doing communication, and then they have they're they're, they're trying very hard to make this a uh, kind of industry standard, and have uh, set, put together a uh, an alliance with. They started with the Linux Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called the All Scene Alliance, 
and the All Seen Alliance um, now is the uh, uh, chief cat herders on the All Join uh, specification and protocols. Um, and so what this allows you to do is uh, there's a, um, a set of what they call uh, buses that are running. And the bus, uh, you know, all the devices that are all join enabled, they connect to the, to the bus mm -hmm. and go, you know, hey, you know, I support this type of an interface. Right. So I support a light interface or a, I support a, a TV interface or I support a dimmable light, which is different from a light. Right. Or, you know, you know, here are my capabilities. And so there's this, this discovery mode um, that you can... Um, uh, you know, they all broadcast. And then other devices that want to control lights can say, hey, who are the lights on the on the system? Right. And so now I can connect to those lights and I can start controlling those lights. Um, and so your TV could say, what are the lights in this room? And I'm going to dim them when I start a movie. Yeah. You know, and so, um, you know, or you, know, you could have a centralized controller that is talking to all of them over all join. But we've got a, a, a common protocol, a common way to discover the devices, new devices that come onto the network, you know, the onboarding process is very simple, and then, uh, you know, centralized ways to control them. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm really excited about all join. Yeah. Um, just, just having a standard there is, is really exciting to me because yeah, device onboarding has traditionally been a pain. I mean, I have three of these, um, thermostats, these radio thermostats, and, uh, I didn't realize the, the Wi-Fi modules weren't installed, but, uh, <laughs> you know, taking that into account, it took me, I don't know, two or three hours to get these things set up. Most of that was because the modules weren't actually in them, yep. but uh, man, what a pain. And, and really I should have been able to, um, you know, connect to those through some kind of generic protocol initially um, and using all join discover them and then automatically configure those. And it should have been an uh, almost completely automatic process, but it was, it was such a hassle so that it's good to think that that problem should get solved here at some point. Absolutely. No, my, my dream is that we just turn on a new device and bam, it starts showing up in the system mm -hmm. and the system is smart enough to accept it as one of its own and start uh, playing nicely with it. Right. Um, uh, so all join though, uh, Microsoft all up has taken a big bet on all join. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a blog post back in November, um, that, uh, you know, talked about how we've actually built in a all join, um, uh, router into Windows 10. Yep. Uh, so the, the the bus that I was talking about, if you have a Windows 10 machine in your home, you already have a all join bus running in your house, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> and uh, my team, um, there's a guy named Ivan Judson. Um, you can find him on GitHub at IR Judson, uh, J-U-D-S-O-N. Um, he has been working on um, a set of Cordova plugins for all join. And um, so what that means is that we will be able to write cross-platform apps, truly cross-platform apps um, with a all join plugin for uh, obviously Windows uh, Phone 8.1 mm -hmm. um, and later, but also um, uh, iPhone and Android um, and be able to, to control all join devices from your phone, from your uh, cross-platform apps. Right. Um, and you, you know, and he's, he, what he's running is he's running the thin client, uh, which doesn't have a bus because we don't need a bus. Right. It's a phone. Yeah. We're assuming one already exists. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so I'm, Oh, go ahead, Carl. I was going to say, you know, 
You, you talked a lot about all join. Are there any kind of big competitors to that? And, you know, if so, or if, if not, you know, is all join kind of, you know, something that could be the future of IOT in, in the household? So there are absolutely competitors, you know, going back to the cookie licking, um, there's a lot of companies that are trying to lick the cookie here um, and trying to set the standard because they have this idea that if they set the standard, they control it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Google is probably probably has the largest competitor, which would be Thread. Um, the um, uh, There's other larger ones like um, iControl. Um, iControl is... is Believe it or not, it's not Apple. Um, it's uh, Eye Control is a uh, network of devices that are all um, uh, what do you call Eye Control certified, and they actually white label to a number of different companies. So uh, when you look at uh, Comcast, um, they're they're actually not doing their own development of IoT devices. They're actually white labeling from Eye Control. Okay, and um, there's a number of companies that produce Eye Control devices. They pay extraordinarily large licensing fees um, to iControl in order to do that. Um, but you know, they're, they're the the biggest open protocols at the moment would be Thread and AllJoin. I know there are others out there, uh, but those are the two biggest. And then uh, there's a number of um, proprietary ones as well. Okay, cool. So I, you know, going back to the devices that we were talking about, I know you mentioned a couple, but what are the the most interesting devices to you right now? Um. Well, so it depends on what space you're talking about. So, uh, <laughs> well, I guess you know, I, I was thinking just personally to you. Um, you know, is there is there anything that you're particularly excited about? I know the um, what is it? The Yoon, I think, is the one that you were yeah. really excited about. Yeah, so about. the Arduino Yoon. Yeah. Um, and and you know the uh, so I'm I'm really excited about the Arduino Yoon um, because it's an incredibly powerful little bitty device for seventy bucks. Right. Um, but I also, I mean, I, I like the whole Arduino ecosystem because it's so open and so friendly and easily accessible. Um, so uh, Arduino.cc, mm-hmm. and if you go look at their um, uh, product page, you know they have an incredible number of different uh, little Arduino devices. Um, there's probably twenty some odd different um, uh, devices, ranging from you know the Arduino Yoon, which has got embedded Linux on it, but most of them are much smaller devices. Um, but I mean, I, I like the little bitty, um, Arduino micro, um, which is, you know, it, it, it's, a smaller than a quarter mm-hmm. and you can, um, uh, you know, it's got all the little uh, pinouts that you can solder to, and you can actually put that in a, in a actual device that you're going to be putting out in a, in a hardened scenario. Um, what I love about the Arduino ecosystem is that I can start as a maker, and it's very accessible to me, and I can I can get into that ecosystem very quickly and very easily. But it grows with me. Um, you know, I can start. Um, you know, when, once I get up to the Yoon, um, that little uh, system on a chip, the little Linux system on a chip, is actually produced by a company called Dog Hunter, and okay. uh, Dog Hunter. Um, they they sell the the system on a chip there, um, and I can get it with um, uh, Wi-Fi, um, the you know the, the Linux system on the chip, uh, some amount of memory, some amount of uh, uh, flash and ROM, um, and all the correct pinouts for me to just drop it onto a larger device that I want, um, and I can have those pinouts custom made for me for about twelve dollars per chip. It when I'm ordering in quantities of 5,000 or more. Nice. 
Um, that's that's awesome. <laughs> you know, because now all of a sudden I can build a fairly intelligent system. Um, you know, with with you know Linux and and hopefully soon Windows uh, behind it for twelve dollars a chip. Yeah. Okay. My whole bill of materials for a new device can be less than twenty bucks. Yeah. And including some sensors and I mean I'm paying retail. I'm paying um, eighty nine cents for light sensors mm-hmm. retail. Yeah. Um, if I'm ordering those in bulk, I can get those down to oh, yeah. you know easily you know pennies, pennies, pennies. Yeah. So, and, and that's what's important. I mean, cost is 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 one of the biggest considerations here, right? I'm not going to fill my house with a hundred sensors if each sensor is a hundred bucks. It's just not going to happen. No. Absolutely not. Um, quantity is absolutely one of the um, uh, you know drivers of cost. You know, so you think about the um, Nokia five twenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you guys seen the Nokia five twenty, the Lumia yeah. five twenty? Um, it's a great little phone. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a um, it's got a screen. It's got uh, Wi Fi. It's got mm-hmm. uh, and with Wi Fi, it's got uh, B G and N. It's got Bluetooth. It's got uh, you know a whole bunch of different sensors. It's got accelerometers. It's got a compass. It's got uh, that big you know the nice touch screen. It's got you know um, uh, slots for SD cards and and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I can go buy that again retail, no contract, fifty bucks. Mm-hmm. And you know, reading Microsoft's um, financial report, we're not losing money on that device. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that we're, we're making those devices for less than less than fifty bucks. Yeah, I actually all- picked up some of the six thirty fives. I think you got one too, Carl. Yep. Right. Yeah, and that's uh, we got those for forty bucks. And they, right, I missed the, I missed that sale. Yeah, and they make <laughs> they make the five twenty look you know look old by comparison. I mean, it's quad core and SD card reader and you know all the features you mentioned earlier, even sensor core. I mean, yep. so it's, it's getting, you know, high resolution, um, motion data 24 seven, just amazing. Absolutely. What, what is, uh, you know, the technology into there and it just shows what you can build at scale. Absolutely. Um, but even not at scale, I mean, you know, when you think scale, um, you know, if you're talking about, you know, 5,000 units, that's, that's decent scale and you can start getting some pretty good reductions in price at that point in time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's very exciting to me. Um, but you know, I, I'm also I've also got Raspberry Pis. I've also got um, the uh, Lenino One, um, which actually uses the same chipset as what's in the um, uh, the Yun there. Um, I've got a tremendous number of different uh, Arduinos. Um, I've got a uh, a bunch of little Bluetooth beacons. Um, beacon technology is going to be very cool here in the next handful of years mm-hmm. uh, as we get smarter about where our devices are and uh, how we're interacting with them. Um, just trying to think through. I mean, I've got a shed load of little devices. That are, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, Every time I see you, you you know, you have like a stack of new new devices. So, absolutely, that space uh, it's so cool. It's all, all the stuff going on. I, I in particular, I, I like I like the Raspberry Pi because I, I I I like to show people, hey, this is you know, you can get this thing for as little as I think twenty five bucks, and this is an entire computer. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's a computer. And I you know I set mine up in ten minutes. I put. Um, uh, Raspbian on it. And then I was, um, SSHing into it and, uh, you know, I can run it headless, but I can hook it up to a screen and it's amazingly powerful for how, how inexpensive it is. It absolutely is. Um, and I've got four of those that are all, um, uh, I don't take them with me cause they're normally working. Um, I've got one doing a air quality sensor. Um, one of them is controlling a stereo. Um, one of them is, um, uh, controlling blinds. And the other one my son took off with, and I don't know where he went with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So one more thing that, that we haven't talked about is the, as uh, the S word, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> security. Yes. So what do you want to say on security? Cause I know there's, you know, there's obviously yes, security concerns and, and, and honestly, um, a lot of there, there's some people that start the discussion with security, fortunately, and a lot of people that sort of finish it. And, uh, to be honest right now, I'm in sort of, I'm in, I'm in the, uh, you know, when I talk about these things, uh, security is always at the end and, you know, I'm asking this question at the end, uh, doesn't right. mean it's not important though. So what, uh, what do you have to say about security? No, security, security is a, I, I'm, I'm a security nut mm-hmm. to a degree, um, which is one of the reasons why the, the, uh, jackass that was doing the passwords was so annoying to me, but the, um, uh, Security is kind of a given for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one of those, you know, I, I just assume that it's going to be right. there because I'm going to build it in from the beginning. Yeah. And um, and it's it's actually, you know, when you're talking about devices, you know, let's just start in the home for a moment. Um, the um, uh, actually, no, there, there was a there was a movie and I'm trying to remember the name of it. There was a movie. Uh, Jason Alexander was in it um, and it was a industri- industrial espionage um, uh, movie where um, Jason Alexander was the head of one company and there was another company. I can't remember the name of the guy. That oh, is this from a long time ago? It's a while back. Yeah. But I'm if you start to... thinking about the um, uh, all the things that they were doing in there, mm-hmm. okay, like they were monitoring the number of cars in a parking lot at a building. And they were, you know, watching the trash pickups. They were looking at the trash itself. They were looking at the number of pickups. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were looking, I mean, there were so many things that they were looking at there. Um, and, you know, as a, as a guy doing threat modeling, all of a sudden it becomes a little scary as to what information people can pull, um, especially when you're talking about my house. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you think about it, um, the, uh, if you can tap into my, um, you know, just, just figuring out how much electric current I'm pulling, um, you can tell when I go to bed, right? You can tell when I'm not at home. Actually, I got, uh, I got a good example for this one. I, I saw this recently. I think it's out on YouTube. We'll, we'll see if we can dig it up, but, uh, there's all these unsecured IP cameras on the internet and some of yes. them, or I should say many of them have microphones and some of them right. actually have a speaker as well. And I, I believe I have one actually, uh, it was this little free one I got at CES. And, uh, <laughs> so there's some videos on YouTube and there's one in particular that's hilarious because it's this uh, this couple, they're sitting there watching, you know, some TV show and the camera is pointed right at them. And then he starts playing music through it. And every time the the guy gets up to sort of figure out what it is, he turns it off. And then right. he's like, uh, you know, the guy, the guy finally is yelling out. He's like, how are you doing this? Who who's doing this? And the guy's right. like, oh, well, your your camera is not secure. And he starts talking, he starts having a conversation with the guy. And it's scary. Yep. I mean, I have uh, I have a couple cameras on my house. And, you know, I want to make sure that those are, are secure. They're not, you know, they're not, it's not like I have it like, you know, pointed in my bedroom or in the bathroom or anything like that. But, you know, that being said, right. I want to, I want to make sure that there's, there's, you know, if, if I wanted to do that, I want to make sure there's good security for sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, the, the cameras and that kind of stuff are um, the very obvious security holes um, or security, um, not, not, not holes, um, attack surfaces. 
Um, the you know, but if you start thinking about the rest of the possible sensors that are in the house, you know, you've got uh, cameras, you've got smoke detectors, you've got carbon dioxide detectors, you've got um, you know, uh, speakers can be turned into microphones. Mm -hmm. um, you've got all kinds of different uh, possible attack surfaces, and um, you know, there was actually there was a, a guy that was in the. Um, accelerator that uh, I was working with here in Redmond uh, through Microsoft Ventures. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy's company is called Red Balloon Security. And um, on the, uh, the CEO, um, he became internet famous back in 2011 when he emailed himself a, a, a resume on stage <laughs> at Columbia University. Yeah. And he printed the, the resume the act of printing the resume, um, the the postscript in the document, rewrote the firmware on the printer, got its heads moving back and forth so fast that it set itself on fire. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Which is kind of spectacular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty now, I, I've heard of a uh, there, there's a couple different uh ways that that's happened before. It's usually pretty difficult, but yeah, it's that's yeah, scary. Absolutely. Well, so so that one is fairly obvious, as in you know it it, it happened and bam, there's an immediate consequence, and then you know um, lots of great showmanship of the printer set on fire. Awesome. Mm -hmm. However, <laughs> the uh, the one that's more insidious, that's a little more terrifying to me, is that he also proved out that what he could do is he used the printer as an access point to the network. Okay. And so the print rewrote the firmware on the printer. Okay, so he, he knows how to do that. Yep. Um, however, from there, he was able to branch and start attacking Cisco IP phones right? and turn them into microphones. Well, yeah, because now he's in, he's in the network. Yeah. Now he's on the network. And so, and he's got a port in. So the printer can now call out and get new instructions. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so now his company, uh, he's not just a, a, a black hat hacker. He is a white hat hacker. And his company, what they do is they write firmware level uh, security software, mm -hmm. firmware level virus scanning. Okay. And so you um, basically he lifts your firmware, writes his uh, firmware underneath it, puts yours back, and he watches all the I.O. ports and watches for uh, suspicious activity and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so, you know, it, but it's, it's kind of terrifying what is possible there. Yeah. <laughs> That, that, that always seems like, that seems like kind of a hack too. I mean, the, the, then you're, you're, you know, counting on that, that virus, uh, you know, protection to, to catch it. I mean, like on my home computer, like I would never, I would never put my computer on the internet as an example, and then, you know, count on the virus protection. Like there has to be a whole bunch of, you know, it has to be secure from the start, you know, blocking yep. the right traffic and, and things like that. Yep. No, it, it, it's a, uh, belt suspenders and two hands to hold my pants. Right. Exactly. Scenario. Exactly. Um, so you need, you need that. And then you also need network level virus scanning. You also need, you know, blocking the right ports. You also need, you know, I mean, there's a whole, it's an arms race. Yep. Um, but things that we can do, you know, making sure that traffic that we're sending is over SSL, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right. kind of a bare minimum. You kind of need to do that. Yep. Um, don't trust data that's from an unsecured location. Um, you know, because if that data is coming from an unsecured location, it could set your printer on fire. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, don't, don't trust things that are not on your system that you don't have direct control over. Um, the, uh, you know, when, when you're storing data, you need to think about, you know, data at its origin, data in transit and data at rest. Mm -hmm. 
are each one of those locations secure? You know, when, when you're storing the data, you know, what is and is not important, it needs to be uh, secured and so on and so forth. And then you need to take a step back from that and go, all right, what are the things that people could imply, you know, without having direct access to my data? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of them, you know, there was a, a, a security company. Uh, they do um, home security systems. They've got a motion detector and, um, uh, you know, they, when they sense motion, they uh, start sending data to the server and then they analyze it and say, is this good motion or bad motion? And then they send it back to you and say, you know, well, there's somebody in your house that's not supposed to be there or there's, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Well, the fact that there is motion or is not motion, that means traffic on the wire. Right. And so if I'm, if I'm not, if there's not traffic on the yeah, wire, if you're just, if, yeah, if you're just watching yeah, on or off. Yep. <laughs> and so, you know, so we, we've talked about threat modeling and, and all right, well, what does that mean in that scenario? And in that scenario, it means that they need to be sending a relatively consistent amount of data, regardless of whether or not it's meaningful data or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's just so many little things, you know, what if their device gets hacked? You know, well, okay, <laughs> that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so anyways, when you start talking about security, um, yes, please. Uh, <laughs> I'll two, take two, two of those. Service, please. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, well, we could probably spend, you know, a week talking about this topic. I'm, in fact, I'm confident we yep. could. So w- what we might have to do is have some... Uh, some follow-up episodes and, and figure out how, how to, how to, you know, continue to, to talk about this topic. Cause it's, I think it's really exciting and, and it's got so many people interested in it right now. Is there anything uh, else that you wanted to uh, uh, cover before we move on? Uh, no, uh, I think, I think it'd be great. Um, I mean, I, I have a lot of ideas for some follow-up shows. Yeah. I mean, what would be interesting, I think would be potentially to dive into a couple of different scenarios okay. uh, yeah. and actually go, you know, really deep with, you know, the, the people who are, you know, developing some of these scenarios and, and, um, uh, talk it through. Um, one that might be interesting would be, uh, the, the kids that did the air pie. It's a group of high school kids out of, um, uh, London mm-hmm. that, uh, are doing air quality control sensors right. built based on the raspberry Pi. Um, why do they do it? How do they do it? You know, et cetera. Um, and then another, you know, there, there's another, uh, uh, follow-up episode that could be, um, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure how much appeal it would have, but, um, I have learned a tremendous amount in the last year about processors, about what kind yep. of processors are out there. There's hundreds of them. Um, what kind of embedded operating systems are out there, what the capabilities of those embedded operating systems are. Yep. Um, I mean, that alone could make another, you know, two or three or four episodes. Cool. Yeah. I mean, anytime we're talking about developers and, and physical objects in the real world, it, it, developers tend to get excited. So very cool stuff. Absolutely. So let's move on to the Azure pick of the week and, and I'll keep this short and sweet because uh, I know that we're uh, we're pretty long right now. Uh, but my pick of the week is Azure Backup. And I just tried this out a few days ago and uh, now it's available. I think recently it was announced that it's available for Windows client operating systems. This is pretty cool because what you end up doing is you download this little client and it's sort of like the Windows backup client. It's really easy to use. It ends up um, giving you uh, an automated way to do backups so you can schedule them with a really sophisticated scheduler and it will encrypt, it compress and encrypt uh, um, files that go over the wire that get backed up in the cloud. Uh, so it's it's really cool. The first five gigabytes is free, and then I think it's 20 cents a, a gigabyte after that. But it's kind of a neat backup option. I know I've used um, things like OneDrive as a backup before, which isn't really that great. 
um, it, that needs to be part of um, a kind of a bigger backup strategy. And I, I would say this is the same way, but this is great for offsite backups. And it really just makes it so that you don't even have to think about it. You go in there. It's like I said, secure, uh, it's fast and it just, it just works. So I, I thought it was pretty amazing and I hadn't really looked at it from the consumer perspective before. Uh, but this does also work for like servers and things like that. So I would recommend taking a look at this cause it's, it's just so darn easy. And then, uh, Carl, what do you have for the app of the week? Uh, th- this week's app of the week is kind of in honor of Christmas and the holidays, not necessarily an app for you, but this is definitely an app for your children or any other child that you may know. It's a game called Terraria. And uh, if any of your children are into Minecraft, this has a look and feel that's very similar to it. It's very blocky. It does have mining and some of that stuff. But one of the things that Minecraft kind of, you know, doesn't have is like an active combat part of the game. And this adds that in. And all yeah, of my, what my kids are missing <laughs> now. My, my kids love this game, by the way, they, they, yeah. they, they got this through steam and, and they play it nonstop. So it's, mm-hmm. it's on windows phone, iOS, Android, steam, uh, Xbox, PlayStation, just about anywhere. Um, so download it, check it out. Yeah. This actually looks kind of fun. I might have to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then we play this little game, Josh. So I, you probably haven't heard this game, right? I don't think I have. Okay, okay. So what it's really easy. All I need you to do is pick a number between one and four, and then I'm gonna ask you a question. Okay. Uh three. Three. Okay, here's your question. Would you rather be at a baseball game and try to catch a foul ball with a soup can or try and catch a foul ball with a shirt sleeve? Uh shirt sleeve. <laughs> okay. Carl, what's your number? Four. Four. Okay. Would you rather have to wear a Superman cape to school for a whole year? I, this is a game for kids. <laughs> so let's pretend like you're back in school. So would you rather wear a Superman cape to school for a whole year or have to wear your pajamas with a foot with the feet sewn in them every time you go out to play for a whole year? That's really it's worded really weird. So would I rather have oh, a every super- time you every time you go out to play for the next year, the the, the feet are sewn in them. So I don't know why they say that. It must be like footy pajamas. Yeah, either footy pajamas or a superhero cape. Um, right. I, I actually wouldn't mind both. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Carl's going to take both options. <laughs> footy jamas oh. with the superhero cape. That sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, because because people think you're weird if you only have one. But if you have both, they're like, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, that's just Carl. <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Okay, so where can uh, where can people find you, Josh? So uh, people can find me um, on, on the internet uh, at joshholmes.com okay. or uh, Josh Holmes on Twitter okay. or Josh Holmes on Flickr or... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> uh, a little bit, a little bit. Okay. The, um, uh, and then you can find me physically in Redmond um, some of the time when I'm out on a plane mm-hmm. or in a, in a hotel somewhere. Um, and if you ever do get up here to the Redmond area, uh, drop me a line. I'd love to go mountain biking or uh, grab a beer or something like that. Okay. But not at the same time. Uh, well, you know, something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. And then Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. This was an awesome conversation. I loved hearing about IoT. Not a problem. We'll talk to you soon. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. 
Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 